This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, Bitcoin is on life support. If you've been paying attention to the news in recent weeks, you've seen that something called FTX filed for bankruptcy. FTX is a cryptocurrency exchange, allegedly the safest one. They sponsored things like sports arenas. They had endorsements from people like Larry David. The company was run by two people under the age of 31. They mismanaged billions of dollars. Essentially, that money has disappeared. But the ramifications somehow are much larger. For cryptocurrency to work, everybody involved needs to follow a game theory principle where everyone must trust each other. So when this exchange and its associated financial management firm go belly up, the entire system could come crumbling down. Welcome to episode 49 of Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making. We went on a little hiatus over Thanksgiving break. We republished our Black Friday episode, mostly because, as I said in the episode, got a lot of new uh, new ears, new faces uh, out there in, in, in Player 3, so I kind of wanted to reissue that. We, we found it as a bit of a turning point for our show, and um, we didn't pull a fast one. People do that. They reissue stuff. We also think there's going to be a year in review or a best of, but we're back trying to do our weekly thing. Um, and as we record this, Chris, the United States has either won or lost its match to Iran. Yeah, I can't wait to find out about that through memes, basically. Uh, I don't watch soccer. This is not a soccer podcast. Uh, Player 3, we're not going to apologize for that. I don't have time to sit around. Like, I mean, the United States has played by now, what, 270 minutes of soccer. And as far as I know, they've only scored one goal. I, I will not find out the score of the Iran game, but at least in 180 minutes of running around on a field the size of Kansas, they've managed to put the ball in the net one time. I don't have time for that. But they've only allowed one. I'm not going to enable Qatar. They've allowed what? one. They've allowed one. Oh, oh, well, were they in the same game? Gee whiz, that'd be fun. <laughs> uh, the fun part is that the United States drew to England and that England is freaking out about it. That's the greatest thing that's happening that has happened so far. I can't tell if it's more fun for us that they care about that game or they care about the game. Uh, I mean, speak for yourself. Cannot, I'm a soccer guy. I'm Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, yeah. How do you, how do you, how do you? do it there I mean, are two things i would watch well, i, I would things. watch a highlight reel over like a decade i guess and then i get like five or ten minutes worth of mm. interesting content there are two there are three but, things thing number one is that the premier league is on in the morning it's the best hangover cure ever especially in college i can just watch it on my phone which is awesome thing number two is that unlike american football baseball basketball all of it it lasts exactly 90 minutes of game time plus 15 minutes of half unreal no commercials no bullshit we can play it all the time that college football takes a day to play that's great and thing number three is if you're really engaged it's pure heroin. It's, it's more like crack. It's like, ugh, you're so stressed and it's great. But the problem is that many times, unlike American football, there are a lot of games that don't draw you in. Where you're just like, I just don't care right now. I just, I just can't. But when it is, well, I just, I just, can't, I can't, I can't do it. If there, I mean, there's not enough. There's not enough. If I wanted to do that, I would just like pick up cross country or something. At least mm. people finish that, like finish the race in an exciting fashion. Like scoring a goal in soccer it's like you know shooting stars are really cool too but i don't yeah. have time to stare at the night sky all night every night to wait for the rare occurrence i just can't do it speaking of things that most people like and understand but chris finds disdainful and stupid let's talk about <laughs> cryptocurrency that's what this episode is all about uh before we get to that like rate review subscribe more clips on youtube we are priority so the our, of our top five priorities on this show the podcast is one two and three Priority number four is YouTube. Priority number five is just general social media. So we're trying to get more clips on YouTube. You watch the episodes in their entirety. Eventually, usually it takes me about a week longer to get them out. That's going to change eventually. But do all of that. Uh, email us. Shouts to the four and five star review people. And yeah, maybe we'll do a year in review. We'll, we'll see what happens. But let's talk about crypto, Chris. FTX crashed. Everybody learned what FTX was and crypto and crashing and why 20-year-olds are in charge of $20 billion and a bunch of stuff over the week. So what are we doing in this episode? We're explaining the crash. We're explaining crypto. What are we doing? Well, first and foremost, we are kind of celebrating. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's not because the economy is tanking, because the economy is not tanking. One specific sector of the economy is tanking. And more precisely, one particular currency exchange in this whole crypto, I guess, arena is crashing. 
the thing that we're celebrating is that we actually got it right for once. This is a very rare occurrence. It's even rarer than scoring a goal in soccer is Nick and, and me calling something the right way. And we really, I think nailed this one because we, I, I don't think we pulled any punches in our last crypto episode. I mean, crypto is based on nothing. I think at best it's a Ponzi scheme and it's, it, it's an industry of people who want to disrupt for the sake of disrupting. And we said in our episode that that is a really bad mindset. It's not, uh, it's not meaningful. At best, it's valueless, and at worst, it can actually cost people a ton of money. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, that's that's to a T what happened with this with this cryptocurrency crash. We're talking about the FTX crash, uh, Nick. As you said, I, I think a lot of people know the basics of FTX, but just for those of us who have chosen to live our lives, uh, maybe we can do kind of like a, a perspective yeah, on this okay. and, and talk a little bit about uh, kind of the basics of what happened here. Sure. Um, so the first thing I want to say is that the, the most the most recent update is we'll get into FTX and we'll explain that. But the most recent update is that a lender called BlockFi has also filed for bank- bankruptcy. I think that happened opening a business in the United States on Monday. They are a lender um, and it appears as if you can draw lines from FTX not working. And now BlockFi is like, yep, the, the dominoes are starting to crash like in 2008. Um, so, yeah, BlockFi, this is... It's sort of, it's not like 2008 where we don't know if like the economy is ever going to be back, but it is like 2008. It was like, we don't know exactly when this is going to stop. I would also like to say definitely condolences to people that were hoodwinked into putting all of their money on this and have to start over. That sucks. And this is like partially what we're doing here because they just were kind of pitched by a lot of people that know how the internet works. And if they didn't know how the internet works, they just bought into it because they see the price going up. It's not like real estate. Real estate is essentially never a bad investment at whatever time. Okay, so FTX. FTX is sort of like, I like to think of it as basically any sort of online bank application. Say you're Marcus by Goldman Sachs, who I use for some banking, Barclays, Wells Fargo, Fidelity. But when you get on the platform, what you're buying and selling is cryptocurrency. Or I think that the thing that they led the most in was Bitcoin, but they also had their hands in other stuff. FTX is an exchange. It's a it's a bank. It's an ex, it's like where you go when you go to the airport when you're when you're trying to exchange currencies. What was happening is that FTX started to advertise in professional sports and on TV, famously Tom Brady and Giselle Budgen, and it made it seem super legit. But behind closed doors, there were like thirty people that were just doing drugs and coding, and they were doing kind of this swoop and swap exchange because the the money the cryptocurrencies were worth more money on a different market. At a certain point, they started using investor money to pay off bad investments from the dude's girlfriend, and then it all fell apart when the money didn't exist. That's the gist, right? Yeah, that, that's in a nutshell what happened. There are some ongoing investigations right now. Uh, according to The Economist, FTX is under investigation by both the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission, and there could be potentially even criminal investigations that come out of this. It's it's really difficult to tell exactly what happened. You, online sleuths have kind of pieced it together through public pronouncements and Twitter spats that these guys have gotten in with other investors in other cryptocurrency exchanges. So we have a basic picture. And of course, there's been excellent financial reporting from all the mainstream media organizations. So we can tell basically what happened. Uh, Though, of course, the full details are going to come out once the US government concludes its investigation and potentially the the Bahamian government concludes its investigation as well, because that's where FTX FTX was ultimately located. Uh, But just to give some 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 context to this, I guess, and demonstrate how legit FTX as a as an exchange was for cryptocurrency. there was a piece published in The Economist last December, so December 2021. We're recording this right at, right at the beginning of December 2022. And this piece is a, basically a profile of what it describes as the four most powerful people in crypto. And it, it be, the first guy that they're profiling is this guy, Sam Bankman-Fried, who is the founder of FTX, this cryptocurrency exchange. And uh, he, they portray him as exactly... Like every stereotype you think about a Silicon Valley, altruistic minded, but disruptor oriented, probably not that well established, but has a ton of money because he's been successful in getting the, in, you know, getting these investments off the ground. Like all the stereotypes are true for this guy. And 
this piece is just glowing. It's like, man, this is a dude who founded FTX. It's the hottest firm in crypto. At the time, it was two years old. It raised $420 million in October 2021 from investments from BlackRock and Sequoia invested a bunch of, it evaluated at like $25 billion. Just a, a crazy, crazy a successful cryptocurrency exchange. And then if we fast forward to not even a year later, this all this kind of started going down the drain in October. So like 10 months later, uh, FTX crashed. And the most recent cover of The Economist magazine has a story called, Is This the End of Crypto? The, the Downfall of Cryptocurrency. So it doesn't take very long in an industry that is defined by a lack of ties to the real world yeah. for extreme risk to explode and result in the loss of tens of billions of dollars worth of capital. Yeah. And so again, like I said, um, shouts to all the people that lost their money. I hope that there's fraud and people go to prison, which it looks like it's possible. And, and aside, anytime Probably. you do business with a company that uh, is centered in the Bahamas, understand that they're in the Bahamas because they're incredibly smart. They're either incredibly smart because they don't want to pay taxes or they're incredibly smart because they're, they found a way to hoodwink you and they're taking yours and a bunch of other people's money and there, are, there isn't regulation that can stop them. So that's like, they're smart if they're in the Bahamas. It's just, are they devious? And the answer to that is probably, I mean, to be honest. So that, that, that should have been the first thing right there. So this, this guy, Sam Bakeman freed, and then he kind of, there was some investment bullshit that was happening too. And it was funny money and it was never really there. And his girlfriend is a, is a whole thing. We'll get into that. But the, the crumbling of crypto as a result of the crash of FTX it kind of highlights this thing. It's a really, it, it's not a well-known game theory thing, but it's a, it's a game theory problem that was invented in the 80s or it was coined in the 80s as a way to describe how necessary it is for various systems to agree upon each other and what mm -hmm. can happen if one of them fails. It's called the Byzantine Fault or the Byzantine Problem. Now, the Byzantine the Problem. The Byzantine Fault. Did you find this? Yeah, the Byzantine Fault or uh, it's the... It, it, the Byzant it's to describe Byzantine generals, which it must have been an utter history nerd to go with Byzantine fault instead of like the Ming fault or the Roman fault or the general fault. But he went with Byzantine to prove how smart they were, whoever coined this term. The idea is like this. You got three Byzantine generals. They are in, I don't know, Greece, Italy, and what is Germany. They are getting beat and they have to go back to Byzantium and they have to figure out a way to do this at the same time. If one of them fails, the likelihood that any of the others will succeed goes down, right? So how do okay. they communicate to either advance or retreat with one another? Now, the problem with the generals is that there's time and space and you can't get messages to one another. The problem in computing systems, which is what this was invented to describe, is that if any of the players, if any of the generals simply disagrees or pulls rank or has nefarious shit in mind, the whole thing falls apart. Now, a Byzantine fault means you want to build a system that anybody can be an asshole and we, we're fine. Anybody can be an idiot and we're fine. It's going to hurt, but it's not going to hurt the same way as the entire empire going down. In 2008, we had a Byzantine fault situation, which was not one or two assholes, but like hundreds of thousands of assholes at the same time doing the same thing. And they got their money and everyone else got screwed, right? So if half of them had done it and half of them had not, if the swoops and swaps and all that other stuff that was going on. But right now in crypto, there aren't hundreds of generals, right? Metaphorically, where there are hundreds of thousands of banks and everybody with money and systems and regulation. In crypto, there are a couple Byzantine generals. Yeah, yeah there's, all a, there's only on a handful of exchanges. Right, exactly. They all depend on one another. So when one goes down, it's like, uh-oh, the empire could fall. Yep. Yeah, that's so, so, so there's, there's a game theory network established here. And the problem is that there are single or like binary points of failure where the whole system is contingent on people buying in. I mean, so, so just to illustrate that, I told you that uh, The Economist did their cover mm -hmm. issue on cryptocurrency. And the, the question that one of these headlines poses from the most recent issue is, uh, is how crypto, well, it's, it's not a, a question per se, but the headline reads, how crypto goes to zero. And the first line of the article is, if everyone stopped using it. That, in five words, is how crypto would go to zero. Right. So it's, it's really quite simple. And the problem with having a system where there are a few very large players like the FTXs of the world 
is that when one of them folds, that undermines the entire industry. So in The Economist's most recent profile of Sam Bankman-Fried, whereas before they were talking about him as this massive influential player who's disrupting the system and implementing what he calls effective altruism, quote-unquote, and we'll get to that later, now he's a guy who, instead of being the future of the industry, is actually probably going to rob the industry of its future. Yeah. And that's because of this Byzantine fault structure where one guy is unable is through either malice or incompetence is unable to fulfill his obligations to attack the castle, I guess. He's a bad general. Right. And because of that, everybody else involved loses. And really, of course, you know, we've gone back to it a couple of times here, but the people who are holding the bag are the people who invested a lot of money, like real world value in cryptocurrency. Right. And it's so volatile. It was I, I think it would have been an unwise investment, although listeners, player three, never misconstrue anything we're saying to you as any kind of financial advice. We would yeah. never do that. No, I just, uh, um, I, I'll tell you who to bet on, um, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, listen to uh, Interesting to See, a podcast about competition strategy yeah. and decision making. You would be better or... off financially if you had taken my bets instead of crypto. Yes, that's true. Sam Bankman fried is estimated by Bloomberg to have no net value. Uh, his net worth is zero, whereas literally weeks ago, it was in the tens of billions of dollars. He was one of the wealthiest billionaires in, in the United States. I mean, he was a billionaire at 30 years old. So this this unstable, highly volatile system was highly dependent on the success of the key players involved, the key exchanges where people could trade their dollar value or the real world currency value for cryptocurrencies. And when that major player failed, the entire system looks to kind of be uh, in what The Economist is describing as a crypto winter. Uh, I don't know if that's like supposed to suggest that it's like a seasonal thing or like a cyclical deal where mm. there will be ebbs and flows in value, but it seems to me like this pretty much undermines and exposes the entire thing. And, and, and as we said before, a lot of this is going to be dependent on the results of ongoing like federal investigations that could potentially result in criminal cases. But if yeah. the it, it, regardless of whether the results of those investigations result in actual criminal charges, I think that undermines the integrity of the entire concept of crypto, and at the very least is going to result in a huge amount of involvement from regulators, uh, which really defeats the purpose of crypto. The whole yeah. point was supposed to be decentralized and, and free from regulation, but uh, actually that's probably not going to be the case because of what has happened here to FTX and, uh, and possibly further exchanges to follow suit. Yeah, and this, this kind of goes to the heart of what game theory is invented to do. So we break down all these dilemmas, the traveler's dilemma and the prisoner's dilemma. And that is a, in those explanations and those metaphors and stories, there are a finite number of players. And as a result of that, you can kind of get yourself into these situations where it's you know, four outcomes. There are tables. We can say, do this, do this, do this. And there's a mathematical solution. And there, then there's a human side. But the fundamental crux of game theory is that if everybody agrees except two or three people, that undermines the entire thing. For example, the reason that communism and socialism are kind of attacked by game theory is that if everybody agrees to just be kumbaya in a place, it only takes one or two to be like, yeah, I'm going to take over and take charge of this. And we talked about that in our monarchy episode. There's a value into buying into the system. And if everybody's at the same, all it takes is one person to, to swim upstream and it undermines the, the entire thing. Which is So we talk about Sam Bankman-Fried and the, the generals. But it's the soldiers that are really going to be the reason that this is dried up and that this is going to be winter. We saw this in 2008 with, um, I forget the guy's name, whoever one of the people is that was in the country that got in, in he didn't get in trouble, but he, one of the banker dudes. He was explaining to people that the idea that's, that's a, a, a big part of this is that it's a financial sector in Manhattan and London, and that's fine. But where real depression and real recession and real crashes come in is when the average consumer chooses not to invest in a thing. The reason the stock market, I mean, it's bad for many reasons, but the reason that it's good is the average person can be like, well, you know, I like this grocery store. I'm going to buy groceries here. Or I believe in General Motors. I'm going to invest in General Motors. And then when it's time to retire in 20 years, I'm going to have more money as a result of their success. And I'm going to buy their cars because it's all going to, a rising tide lifts all boats. Just like in 2008 where people were like, no money to people I don't know ever. This is that, but it's worse. Because at least those crooks had like some, some track record. With this Sam Bakeman freed person, if me as a millennial in my 30s, like under no fucking circumstances, about 15 years or five years ago, 2017, when it was blowing up, I was, it's worth like a small portion of a paycheck, 50 bucks a month for a couple of years. We'll see what happens. You never know. Now I'm like, no chance. Nope. Yeah, there's, there, there's no way. And, and, I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about Sam Bankman-Fried and he's the subject of, of investigations and, and, you know, we're, we're not here making allegations. We're, we're here 
kind of reading and talking about the stuff that we're reading in uh, in like real journalism reporting. But there are some other key players here who mm-hmm. illustrate, I think, really the importance of game theory and understanding like what risk is. I mean, we we talk about risk all the time on the show. Everything we everything we do is in in game theory is related to risks and payoffs and if the stakes are real then players need to have a a realistic approach to managing their risk whether that's in a poker game a rock paper scissors game the game of chess stag hunts prisoner's dilemma whatever it is risk is really at the heart of game theory and, and managing scarce resources in order to to minimize risk and to protect yourself as best as possible uh so before i get into this personality who i think perfectly illustrates why cryptocurrency is just a just absolute piece of garbage and a a valueless part of human society. Uh, I want to talk about a real, no kidding, investment concept, and that's called the stop-loss order. Nick, you heard of that? Uh... No, maybe I. Yes, I have heard of. I can't give you anything. It's like opening a test and be like, "Yeah, I know that I should have read that. I didn't though." Well. I didn't know what it was before learning about FTX either. So it, I guess one of the <laughs> one of the silver linings that has taught me a little bit about investments. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an investor, so I don't really need to know this stuff day to day. Right. Uh, so from Investopedia, a stop loss order is a type of order used by traders. So people who are making trades can yeah. order a stop loss, and they do that to limit their loss or lock in a profit on an existing position. So they control their exposure to risk by placing a stop loss order. So if you've lost X amount of money on trades, then they can place an order before that happens and say like, okay, once I've lost X amount, stop selling, stop trading, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm cutting my losses at this juncture. Oh, interesting. So it's a really a key component of yeah. managing risks. It's one of like the main tools in the toolbox. I want to now switch to discussing one of the other key players here, and that is a Caroline Ellison, who is a very interesting personality and I think really encapsulates what I think is makes crypto pretty unwise. Uh, Caroline Ellison was the CEO of a company called Alameda Research, and that mm-hmm. was the sister company of FTX. So Sam Bankman-Fried, the guy who was behind FTX, founded Alameda Research, and basically... Uh, Alameda Research was a way for FTX uh, to eventually like go interface with banks. And that's kind of like the heart of the investigation here. Uh, but this Caroline Ellison is a very interesting person. She uh, she first met Sam Bankman-Fried when the two of them worked at a uh, Jane... Uh, I just had it here a second ago. It's like Jane something investments. I don't Let's know. Let's find out. Oh, Control oh, F. Jane. Yes, Jane. This is so great. This yes. is live. This is a peak. Jane Street. Sorry, yes. the, 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 the quantitative trading firm Jane Street. So they met when uh, Caroline Ellison uh, went to work there after she graduated from Stanford. Uh, she has a really interesting background, and I think it's pretty basically defined by privilege. I mean, this is a person who rose all the way to the top uh, in a bubble the whole way. Uh, so she's the daughter of economists at MIT. Uh, she was like the captain of her math team in high school. So, you know, you can kind of picture this, this bright, Uh, She's described as a hardworking, very serious student uh, who eventually goes on to Stanford, studies mathematics at Stanford, and in my opinion, math is one of the hardest things you can possibly study. I have roommates who did it. I didn't have the courage to do it. Uh, Math is really hard. And anyway, so she graduated from Stanford with a degree in math and joined Jane Street, and she got coached by Sam Bankman-Fried. He was like a a mentor, and he was a a couple of years older. So right now, Caroline uh, Ellison is 28 years old, and Sam Bankman-Fried is 30. So they Was he just a mentor, Chris? Well, Nick, the answer to that is no. Uh, but we'll get to that uh, here in, in just a second. I just I just want to like I want to skip ahead. I want to give this basic yeah, background okay, because yeah. to illustrate that this is a person who does not have a healthy understanding of what actual risk is. The bottom line here is that Caroline Ellison has no re- had no real appreciation for what it means to like actually lose things. Like it actually have to pay consequences and, and like face the results of making poor decisions. Uh, in there, there's a widely publicized video where she describes stop losses. So, so the stop loss order thing, that main tool in the toolkit mm-hmm. of investors who are trying to cut their losses. She describes those as not a great way to approach risk management. Uh, she, in other places, she has said that young people are tend to be too risk averse. Uh, she oh. said in that video that you have to be comfortable with a lot of risk. So imagine 28-year-old kid, graduated from Stanford huh. after being raised by two economists at MIT who is, is spent a lot of time on a, 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 on a Tumblr account, which it's unclear whether she's actually publicly claimed this, but uh, you know, 
people have like Sam Bankman Fried acknowledged that she had this Tumblr blog where she was pretty a- active, and it was called World Optimization. Yeah, okay. So I- imagine this kind of personality who has been in a bubble of privilege her entire life, all the way to the top of this like multi-billion-dollar crypt- cryptocurrency exchange company, who is talking about how people need to be more risk averse. Or people, or sorry, not more risk averse, more uh, risk, have a higher affinity for risk, be more comfortable with risk. Right. I mean, this is a person who has never lost a single thing in her entire life and has no idea what it means to have all of that come crashing to the ground. It makes sense then when tens of billions of dollars of value are placed into this person's hands that risk actually shows up and it actually destroys every single thing. Uh, that she was holding on to. And part of that is probably through some negligence. There may or may not be some criminal element to this, depending on the investigations. And so it, it all of this kind of just makes sense. You know, there's a real parade of red flags at play here, not just from the personalities, but from the investment strategies, uh, some of the court orders, uh, court filings that show like where the money is owed. They owe like $8 billion worth of assets to different people now. Uh, all of this really adds up to a pretty clear picture that's like exactly the way we described it in our first episode. Yeah, and the thing that is really, I don't know, I don't want to dance on people's graves who lost their life savings, but we were not, like you and I are financial assholes, like we're, we have Google. There were very smart people who were like, hey, no, and those people tended to be over 50, white, male, and incredibly wealthy. Um, I am completely aware of uh, a healthy distrust of that demographic, especially in the United States. I'm a journalist. On the whole, people that you see in suits in D.C., just uh, what if they were lying? Just a good way to live your life and then make them prove that they're not. But when those people said this thing is not going to work, it was easy for people of our age and significantly younger and people who were marginalized, of course, to say, no, this currency has the ability to cut through the the... The, the inequity of the financial system, the dollar and the pound and the euro, it has the ability to make us all equal. The rich white men didn't say, no, it doesn't. They said, yeah, but it's a scam. And they were largely dismissed by a, a group, a, a, a generation who was incredibly mad at them for good reason, like destroying the environment and the whole 9-11 thing and the financial crisis after financial crisis and Purdue Pharma and all of that. But in this case... When Warren Buffett says this is a Ponzi scheme, he was right. So listening to us is one thing. But when these guys were like, hey, t- take a closer look at these, these rich, privileged, like incredibly wealthy, privileged kids, they don't know either. Yeah. This isn't well, real. And, and, I, and I think there's, there's some real delusions of grandeur at work here, too. I mean, Warren Buffett's been at the center of, of the investing world for decades now. Yeah. And he didn't get to that position by doing get-rich-quick schemes. Uh, basically, FTX as a company, tried to identify inefficiencies in the crypto exchange market. And so like this very young, really immature kind of pseudo industry has very little uh, kind of established knowledge. The institutional knowledge is really low because it's just a young thing. Like it's a new concept, people using computers to decentralize value. Like that's brand new. So when this company comes along that identifies potential inefficiencies, uh, they think they are really onto something and like they raised a ton of money. Yeah. But I mean, that's the kind of get rich quick stuff that allows opportunists to make a lot of money, mm-hmm. but it doesn't play well into the hands of people who actually have a healthy appreciation of risk. And, and I think to illustrate this delusions of grandeur thing, I want to talk a little bit about the effective altruism that Sam Bankman fried yes. and, and Caroline Ellison uh, kind of a spouse. Did you read about that? Uh, kind of. I yeah. I glanced over that, and I listened to a podcast from the Wall Street Journal about that, which is sort of like playing on the idea that it can. It's an incredibly equitable. Not equitable. It's uh, it promotes equality. Um, that's what this is about, right? No, not not equality. Equity. Equity. You, like you had it. You had it right the okay. first. Right. And and I think you know. I, I think largely in in public in in the broader like. Uh, social imagination, that's kind of more of a parlance thing, like equality versus equity. It's, mm-hmm. Well, you know, how can we level the playing field so that people can make the most of and for themselves as possible? And, and I think that's a reasonable that, that's a reasonable standard. I mean, it shouldn't be that people are just held back their entire lives through circumstances beyond their control. 100%. I mean, it, it, people who have the ability to change that should. Uh, but 
this this philosophy, this effective altruism, or EA, as Bankman Fried liked to call it, has some kind of uh, some kind of strange elements. Uh, so, uh, according to some reporting, it's it's basically just philanthropy. But like one of the tenets is that AI is going to like destroy humankind. Mm. Look, I don't know if you've heard me talk about this before. I don't think I mentioned it on the show. I don't think AI is real. I don't think it really exists. I think there's good computing, but we can talk about that another time. But that's one of the like core tenets of effective altruism is like, oh yes, AI without ethics is going to be the downfall of the human species. Like really weird kind of stuff. And it makes sense if you think like, well, the the mostly young 20 to 30 something privileged people who live in Silicon Valley and trade in millions and billions of dollars, they're the kind of people who think they can see the future really well. I think Elon Musk on Twitter is uh, is another example of yeah, someone who's fun. like would describe themselves as a futurist behind closed doors. Like that that kind of approach to this is kind of what defines effective altruism. So it, you know it's it's one thing to be a philanthropist, give money to good causes like I I think people should be able to do that. But in this case, there are these kind of like strange angles to it that I think really expose the sort of arrogance behind the mindset that's like, oh, I know what the future is going to look like and I know how to best curate that future for a better world for all mm -hmm. of us. And really it's just you know people who have a lot of privilege and not realizing it for what it is. And the thing that really highlights this to me is, is what you mentioned already earlier uh, is that FTX was located in the Bahamas. And so I want to like... I want to like paint a picture here. So this is based on some New York Times reporting. Uh, so last year, FTX did relocate to the Bahamas. So they haven't been there for very long. Uh, but the reason he did it uh, was he described in a post in an effective altruist forum. Uh, he listed a few of the benefits. And those benefits included beaches and low taxes. So here's a guy who's being financially responsible, doing the classic let's move to the tropical islands and tax havens and save our business. Uh, he, Caroline Ellison, and two other important... Actually, no, no, sorry, I'm misreading this. Eight other people mm. lived in a five-bedroom penthouse in Albany, which is a luxury resort on the island of New Providence in the Bahamas. Not in New York. This luxury New York. penthouse, like the highest dollar value. They're talking about low taxes and beaches. But, but then he says in this post, it's a fairly small country. If a lot of EAs move there, EA could end up being a somewhat influential force. So he's saying, well, let's change the world. Let's make it a better place for all. Let's make it equitable and free from poor AI ethics while getting to live in the lap of luxury in a massive penthouse in what ends up being a uh, highly interconnected sexual partnership with many of the other occupants of the mm. house. And, oh, by the way, we just happen to control tens of billions of dollars and we spend our time playing video games, uh, getting friendly with each other and enjoying the beaches of the Bahamas. Like, right. it's it's a perfect, like, they, they, they hold these, like, cognitive dissonant ideas in their mind, like making a better future, but actually just enjoying the hell out of being ultra wealthy and ultra powerful. And like their, their arrogance blinds them from seeing the truth that they're just basically other capitalists and that like, there's nothing to this effect of altruism, altruism other than like making oneself feel good while indulging in every conceivable luxury. Yeah. It's also a pitch. Uh, Gen Zers and millennials really want things to be uh, environmentally friendly. They, they want social justice, which is, Important. I, I see that in my job with senior living and senior housing, seniors that were in the hippie you know, evolution of the 60s, these people who are retiring, they want to know that their community isn't destroying the environment. They want to know that people of all races and, and languages are, are welcome to work there and are welcome to live there. So for the for Gen Zers and millennials, you say this is a, this is about more than money. It's about saving the earth and advancing the human species. No, it isn't. It never is with banks. Never. It's like, no. take money, turn it into more money. Yeah, I mean, so there, there's something to be said, I, I think, for like the creation of wealth and the propagation of wealth to everybody in a system would be ideal because that's, I mean, that's what equity production is. And I think the high-mindedness and nobility of wanting to make a better future for people is, I, I think it's a good thing. I mean, you should try to make the world better for somebody else. But I think it, really at the end of the day, it's it's nothing more than, extreme arrogance really that gives somebody the ultimate privilege having never lost anything telling people to be more comfortable with risk and, and like the, the end result is the collapse of everything that they've built you know so so here's a pretty telling quote from uh, an archive post from this world optimist tumblr world optimization tumblr account that caroline ellison ran it said if i want to do something with my life what is there to do money is too easy 
Like, well, yeah. When you're born into money, when you've had money your entire life, and you go work at a company that makes money off of inefficiencies in an immature market using get which get rich quick schemes and questionable financial dealings, of course you're going to say money is too easy. When it's lying about and you're living in a penthouse in the Bahamas, no kidding it's going to be easy. Yes. <laughs> I mean, also, like, nothing happens to her. Her parents are still rich. Yeah. Well, uh, that and, and that Ooh. this could depend. Like, she could be the, at, involved in a lot of the, yeah. uh, the investigations here. And, and I think it's important also to understand, like, exactly what is going on with, uh, w- with some of the... Uh, like the actual finances of what's happening here. Uh, so there were some documents that came to light in the uh, bankruptcy case. And uh, as I said earlier, uh, FTX owes about $8 billion worth of assets, close to $9 billion in assets uh, as a result of its its bankruptcy filings. And it owes those assets to uh, quite a few uh, different people. Uh, but one of that has caught the attention of uh, kind of like the Twitterati and some more like fast hitter journalism headlines uh, is that uh, the Margaritaville beach resort from the Bahamas, as in Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville is owed $55,319 from Alameda research, which was the sister company of FTX. So, I, I mean, I guess that just goes to show you like what kind of lifestyle these people were living. And it, it's, it's curious. You think like a, a cryptocurrency exchange worth tens of billions of dollars, one of the most prominent in the industry, having all this, you know, ha- having all these bills, like you'd think they would just pay it. Uh, but all of this really started when uh, other major investors noticed there were some discrepancies, uh, in particular it, during an early meeting in, uh, in October. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find this. Uh, it, it, during, a, during a meeting in October, uh, there were some questions about some of the lines in FTX's finances, and there was a $2 billion line uh, in some of the finances that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried put together, is believed to have put together because of the metadata in the spreadsheet. Uh, And uh, during this call with another investor, they couldn't explain where that $2 billion was or or where it came from or like what it actually was doing on the sheet. And so that raised a bunch of red flags and caused a bunch of people to, uh, to depart. Uh, and in particular was this one prominent uh, cryptocurrency investor. And I want to make sure I get this, uh, this part right here. Uh, let's see. Uh, it's, uh, mm-hmm. well, I'll get back to that in, sure. in a second here. But the, but the point is there were some discrepancies on the financial sheet of FTX. And there's a $2 billion allotment that nobody was really sure what it was. FTX wasn't able to explain it. That raised red flags of legitimate investors. Uh, and it caused them to basically start what is the equivalent of a cryptocurrency bank run uh, where people were withdrawing their money from FTX and the currency collapsed or the currency exchange collapsed in a matter of weeks. Uh, it was having trouble filling the balance sheets and it was using Alameda research bank accounts to interface with banks. And it was using uh, customer funds to fill in some of the uh, losses in what it described as a liquidity crunch and so there could be a potential criminal uh, case, uh, criminal implications here with use, misusing investor funds and, and all kinds of stuff. And that's, that, that, that's just your classic fraud of like, we have money. It's not ours, but like, it won't go anywhere. Let's just invest it real quick. And then mm-hmm. that investment doesn't work because it's literally, and I'm not joking, some of the investments that she was making are so risky. I am literally better at betting on sports, more predictably better at betting on sports than this MIT privileged silver spoon woman was at betting on the stock market. Like literally I would have made money for these people. Not a lot, but more than losing everything for and, sure. And let's, and player three, make no mistake. Nick is not good at sports betting. I'm not about bad 53% at it. lifetime, which is better than uh, most degenerate people who lose everything. So, yeah, so, so as I said, not bad. Yeah. yeah no. More than zero. But closer to zero More than, than zero. Uh, like a profitable lifestyle. Not non-zero on the right end of the scale. That's exactly what I'm saying. So the other part of this is, is funny. So I want to, I'm going to pitch you on an episode of Game Theory that ties into this episode. We'll do it right now. We'll do it live on the show. Was it live? Yes. It's whatever generic time of day you're listening to this in whatever car or earbuds you happen to have around you. Okay. So another part of this was the celebrity culture. So I found this paper that is, appears academic because it's got the courier font. <laughs> Does it have like I don't know the name of an author? Yes, or Mark N. Herzendorf. Wow, um, I don't Mark have Hertz. his credentials because this seems to be an abstract. Like this is where we're at with this. So oh, the no. idea is about 
celebrity endorsements. So Hertzendorf asserts and kind of investigates whether or not celebrity endorsements can be explained by a, a, a game theory concept called a, a signaling game, which is a, a deep track of game theory, a dynamic Bayesian game. A signaling game is where uh, you convey information to another player and it becomes more costly to convey that information if the information is false. For example, okay. uh, a worker who acquires a college degree... They acquire that college degree not to get better at anything, but just to show that they got the degree. They show two employers, I got a degree. That's a signaling game, right? Or uh-huh. okay. if a manufacturer provides a warranty for a product, they're trying to say, this never breaks down. Look, we're insur- We're giving you money if it breaks down. It never breaks down. Buy the thing. That's what like insurance essentially is perhaps a signaling game. But the celebrity signaling game is interesting because with the bevy of celebrity endorsers of this particular exchange, FTX most notably, like I think Matt Damon, Reese Witherspoon, the Kardashians, Tom Brady, and Giselle Tom Budgen. Tom Brady. Right. So celebrities, I know this because Media Law was, I was one of the only people that enjoyed Media Law. I find it fascinating and awesome. It's so much fun, IP and all of that kind of stuff. Celebrities are literally different people than non-celebrities in the United States law. They are... Oh. Uh, committing crimes against them is different in terms of like intellectual property. Like if you do... If I did an impression of say, Trump is a little bit different because he was a president, so that's like public domain. But if I did an impression of Christopher Walken on the radio and that was used to pitch a product, Walken could sue the shit out of me. He owns himself. I, if he did an impression of me that was dead on, I couldn't sue him because I'm a plebeian. Wow, that's yes. actually pretty. So, what what is it that defines celebrities under celebrity law? And more relevant to our episode, do Sam Bankman-Fried and Caroline Ellison fit the bill? Okay, no, they don't. Pre-crash, I don't think. Now they might. <laughs> now, now they okay. definitely might fit the bill. But the as to what defines them, great question. You have to argue that in court in front of a judge. There is no uh, okay specific thing, and that's it's case by case, and nobody knows what's going on. And I say this because. The SEC and the Department of Justice are suing members of the Kardashian family. They are investigating this because they didn't disclose how much they were getting paid and what they owe. There are conspiracy theories abound that certain people, Tom Brady, had ownership stake in FTX and that perhaps he may have got out when other famous people were told, hey, the boat's going down, that they might have gotten out. So like now, and you'll see this, anybody that's a doctor knows the first thing that happens at medical meetings when you're going to present research that you've done. The first thing is you show who paid you. And even if they didn't Makes pay sense. you for this thing, they, you show if anybody adjacent to them is paying you for any reason at all. And wow. then you, tell, you present your research. And now the SEC is investigating because that, a similar rule applies to celebrity endorsers. And the, and the thing that makes this really strange is that the, the airwaves of the United States are well-regulated. The internet is not. So nobody knows uh-huh. whether social media endorsements can be a thing. We should do a celebrity endorsement, a celebrity thing episode. Now that I think well, I'm, about I'm it. sold on the pitch, player three. If you're sold on the pitch, uh, also comment below because that will define, uh, I guess, the next set of work we have to do. But didn't you say there was? So what's the what's the conspiracy? Like the basic conspiracy with Tom Brady? You said something about like, mm. like TikTok or something. Somebody yeah. figured out like he was Tweets in the Bahamas TikTok, at sure. some point. So this is these are the facts as we know them and in the order that we knew them. Fact number one is that Tom Brady. Announced his retirement in February. Fact number two is that Tom Brady unretired in March. Fact number three is that in May, the NFL in an investigation found that Tom Brady was colluding with members of a team that he did not play for to retire and then sign with this new team with other people, right? There's a collusion. You're not allowed to do that. Okay, so As only result of that, so far. So he then unretires, and instead of going to the Dolphins, he is forced to stay with Tampa Bay, the Buccaneers. Then... We're paying close attention to what's going on with Tom in his life. In August, during training camp, right in the middle of the most important practice time of a career or of, of a season, Tom Brady takes a quote-unquote pre-planned trip to the Bahamas with his family. Now, everybody, I started, this, I started speculating wildly. I was on their divorce back in July. You can Google it. I was like, there's, there's trouble in paradise. Like, he's saving his marriage. They're getting divorced. Something's going on. Their divorce is announced. All this shit's going down. FTX fails in last week of October, first week of November, somewhere in there. And now people are like, you were in the Bahamas. Headquarters of FTX. And he said the quote, when he got back from his trip, the quote that he said to everyone was, a lot of shit happening. I'm 45, a lot of shit going on. So now the conspiracy theory is that him and Giselle (laughs) 
looked at what they stood to lose, and they're like, yep, we're divorced, and it is a way to hide assets. This is alleged on the internet, and of course, nothing that you and I can possibly be say would be misconstrued as new facts, and we no. are not accusing anybody of anything. No. Uh, what I am accusing somebody of is possibly reporting that uh, during one of the FTX commercials that both Giselle and Tom Brady appear in, it's clear that they were had, they had different filming days. And it's supposed to be like a scene with both of them in it, but they never appear on camera at the same time. It's just edited together, and they're clearly both not in the same room. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if that was indicative of Trouble in Paradise, maybe some scheduling issues. Giselle couldn't you know make space for Tom and his little game and their little team meetings and whatever else. Right. But it's clear that there's something going on there. Uh, I don't know about the conspiracies. I want them to be true. I really want them to be mm-hmm. true. And, and and maybe that's just because I'm overindulging in schadenfreude in this episode. Right. Well, but, Reese Witherspoon, you know, it, other people, like it's bad. Uh, I think Larry David was in one of the Super Bowl yeah. commercials. And he yeah. was like the curmudgeonly old guy that's like, oh, yeah, you wouldn't do this because it's new. So, like, I, I heard his name get tossed around. But, like, he was the guy saying that you shouldn't invest in crypto. So, it's like, well, you know. Yeah, I've seen that, too, the argument. I've seen on, on lawyers on TikTok have said, like, he might be good because, like, sarcasm is not quite. Yeah, you can't. You, you, you can't say, like, well, I was being sarcastic, so of course I endorse this thing, and so right. therefore I'm culpable. Mm-hmm. Like, well, you know. Yeah, so like, if you read the transcript, you're like, oh, he kind of told you not to do this. Yeah, like just because he was on camera saying it. Uh, so yeah. so the, the, the thing that, that brings all of this back together is that, you know, at, at its core, crypto is a valueless thing. You can generate value because of the, the, the idea of a fiat currency, and, and even there are some flavors of Bitcoins that are more pegged to real world things. There's something called a stable coin that is somehow tied to like the value of real world currencies like the dollar. Uh, but then there's other, alternatively things called uh, shit coins in parlance. Mm-hmm. Um, the Economist magazine reported that. And basically shit coins are just kind of dinky little things that people with computers who know how to make a Bitcoin make that are literally not worth the energy required to do the computing to generate those things. Awesome. Like Dogecoin could be an example of like a shit coin that went too far, but it was just so early on. It had like mm-hmm. this opportunity. People thought, oh, oh, Doge is funny. Let's buy it. So it's ultimately a, a valueless thing that could potentially stand in as like a decentralized proxy for, for trading dollars. And, and instead of having government backing, it's backed by this like larger, somehow more equitable thing. It's based on nothing. It requires yeah. people to invest. And, and that's why crypto would go to zero. People just stopped using it. So naturally, banks are really hesitant to get involved with crypto exchanges because there's no regulatory oversight or very little regulatory oversight right now. And by the way, multi-billionaires like Sam Bankman-Fried have a lot of power when lobbying about cryptocurrency uh, regulations because they have a lot of money and they have access to, and, and they're major donors to like Sam Bankman-Fried donated to a bunch of like democratic mm-hmm. campaigns. So of mm-hmm. course people are going to lobby against regulations so they can make more money and do it more quickly. So banks are hesitant to get tied up with that. And the way that FTX approached this issue of not being able to work with banks is by using Alameda Research, the sister company, to process transactions on behalf of the exchange. Mm -hmm. And they confirmed that later on. Uh, Some customers were reportedly asked to wire their deposits through Alameda, uh, and that's according to Cointelegraph.com. And Alameda had this banking partnership with a a financial tech bank called uh, Silvergate Capital. And they they used customers' funds, and that became the main point of failure for for FTX. And people found out that, like, a lot of the assets that FTX, the exchange, had was in this – coin called FTT, which is a coin that FTX invented. So it's like it's like they are both the bank and the currency. So yeah. they, they, they had a bunch of money that was like tucked away in their own thing that they invented, which as we've established before, is based on nothing in the real world. They right. just generated their own false value and they used customer funds to, to cover in a, in a liquidity crunch. And they did it by interfacing with their sister company through a bank because the bank wouldn't go direct to the exchange for obvious reasons. Risks Banks understand risk, and cryptocurrency exchange that no doubt. has tens of billions of dollars doesn't really have any interest in that. No, And, and so, you know, I, I don't know what's going to come of all these investigations. I don't know what the result is going to be, but it looks like the future of crypto is pretty grim. And, you know, it, it sucks that people lost actual real-world value. Uh, but I'm not going to feel bad for the types of people who had, you know, a little bit too much arrogance, sniffing their own farts a little bit too much, getting high on their own supply, thinking they're going to reshape the future and yeah. use their own perfect vision to try to make a more equitable, more abundant future for everybody. Like, I'm not going to feel bad that those people are now facing the consequences of ignoring risk. Uh, you know, people got to learn sometime. And uh, I just, 
I can't find it in my heart to uh, to shed tears for a guy who was described as one of the four most powerful people in crypto and uh, up until three weeks ago had billions of dollars to his name. Yeah, and I... If it sounds too good to be true, man, like, so there's a very famous bet. I was Warren Buffett versus somebody, and he bet that over a series of years that just putting the money into an index fund for the S&P 500 would out-earn some of the brightest investors on Wall Street, which included quantitatives and Harvard Business and Wharton School of Business people, and he kicked their ass. It's like, the, the other interesting thing about Warren Buffett is, yeah, he has been at the epicenter of money for like 15 years now, but for 60 years preceding that, he was just a dude in Nebraska. He was just investing slowly but surely. He And that's how percentages work. At some point, you're on the top of the mountain. It was like 7 to 10% every year. He's like, and now he's this rich, powerful person in his 80s. It didn't happen overnight. And when I'm seeing these people have you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in value, quote unquote, of crypto- cryptocurrency. That's just because we've decided that the dollar value of cryptocurrency is this today. We could literally just change it. Yeah, the, the people who are right. running the Ponzi scheme have have created enough, I guess, interest in the cryptocurrency to get enough people to buy in and like generate this value out of nothing. But I mean, it's it's based on nothing in the real world other than people agreeing with it. You know, that, that's that's the thing that makes it a scheme is like if people stop buying into this and dedicate their energies and efforts elsewhere, then the thing will go away. It's a right. self-looking ice cream cone. And uh, don't take this as financial advice. I would never give financial advice to anybody under any circumstances. But my God, I am I, I cannot emphasize enough how bad an investment cryptocurrency is unless you're doing it for like for the means don't don't put your life savings into that kind of stuff because it could just go kaput and this is a perfect example of it i, I think the future of crypto is looking pretty grim uh, as i said at the top of the show i'm kind of celebrating this because it's like well you know we got one right uh but at the expense of, of people actually losing their homes yeah. and losing value and and all kinds of, i don't know if anybody lost their home people people lost a lot of a money. lot there have been suicides uh, i think but well, and, and and I think a large part of that is because people put their faith in the wrong kinds of people. You know, people who were arrogant were in charge. People who didn't have any self-awareness were in charge. People who don't appreciate risk were in charge. And exactly the kind of result you would predict from that came to pass. Yep. And uh, yeah, I mean, they could, can't really can't really say it any better than that. I, th- I think that the real irony here is that this is just going to end up giving more power and ability and people who make laws and, and regulate things are simply going to trust the old guard more now. Instead of making an equitable future and getting a seat at the table for younger people or marginalized people, I think the opposite is going to happen. We're like, okay, well, no, let's just go back to our good old uh, Wall Street people and it's GTFO out of here, which is is a bummer, but it is what it is, man. Yep, nothing we can do. I guess... Uh Invest in something valuable. Invest in gold. Actually, don't invest in gold. Don't take my advice. I'm not giving financial advice. No, Venmo me your money. And uh, first thing I'll do is go to the casino, put it on black, double our money, and then we'll start betting on sports. Yeah, put it in the Chris Needs a New Pair of Shoes fund. Mm -hmm. Get the same pairs of New Balances since you're 12. Yeah. Every year.